Hello, this is OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson, and welcome back. This week on 321 Go, Cosmo Macero and I talk about Massachusetts' new paid family and medical leave. We discuss my blog post about family separation at the border in the context of child welfare and delays in recreational marijuana sales as the July 1 date quickly approaches. Later, Ann Murphy in our office talks to Kelly Linema from Faneuil Hall and Kate Levesque from the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy about downtown playdates and all the different ways families and kids can enjoy all that downtown Boston has to offer. And in two minutes with Tom this week, our CEO Tom O'Neill talks about the Supreme Court. There's a lot happening in Supreme Court news this week, all of which are going to have a big impact on our country. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, the official podcast series of O'Neill & Associates, New England's leader in public affairs. My name is Cosmo Macero, your host for 321 Go, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important stories from the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. In this installment of 321 Go, Massachusetts is enacting a long-awaited paid family and medical leave program for employees in qualified situations statewide. It's part of the legislative grand bargain on wage fairness, sales taxes, and family-friendly benefits that was finalized this week. We'll discuss. And our own Cayenne Isaacson talks about the permanent damage inflicted by family separation at the U.S.-Mexican border. The subject of her excellent piece posted this week on O'NeillNow.com. Finally, advocates for the Massachusetts cannabis industry took a big hit this week. Uh, More delays in rolling out sales of marijuana for recreational use have emerged. The much-anticipated July 1st start date for such sales is being pushed back, and the finger-pointing has begun. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. Hey, a communications strategist, senior director at O'Neill & Associates, and the official voice of OA On Air, Hello, Cayenne, and may I ask, what inspiring anecdote can you start us off with today? Hello, Cosmo. Thank you for having me. Always. Well, Stephen Ear has done it again from the Boston Globe, giving me a, a nice, positive anecdote, feel-good story uh, with everything that's going on, uh, issues around the families being separated at the border. Obviously, there's a lot. He's of like your personal muse. I know. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to send him a, a nice note. Thanks, Steve. Um, but there are children. Obviously, we've we've uh, some have heard the the audio tapes, crying, screaming, in distress. Uh, there are pictures, lots of stories out there uh, of children suffering. And there is some kids in Salem uh, who are writing letters to some of these kids. Mayor Driscoll in the city of Salem has sort of organized this. They're accepting letters from from kids throughout the city that they're going to um, figure out how to get to kids on the border that say really encouraging things. Some of them say, a couple anecdotes, keep your head up, you're not alone, people are working on returning you to your family. Uh, Another one, you guys are struggling and what you're going through is awful and no one should have to go through exceptionally children. I hope everything works out well. So, you know, kids doing good things is always a good story. Kids helping kids. All right, great. Okay then, let's get to it. First, 
if you're a working person in Massachusetts, and let's face it, you probably are, there's good news that should be helpful in the event of a family illness, birth of a child, or other qualified event that might be made easier by a period of paid family leave. If you've heard about the grand bargain, you may be aware that Massachusetts legislatures and Governor Baker, Governor Charlie Baker, this week in a move to avoid a series of complex ballot questions, together reached a deal with various advocates on elevating the minimum wage over time, implementing an annual sales tax holiday, and establishing a concrete state policy on paid family and medical leave. Kyan, what can you tell us about some of the nuts and bolts of this family leave program? Uh, Basically, almost every employee who qualifies for unemployment insurance will qualify for paid family leave. Workers will be able to uh, take up to 12, 12 weeks of paid family leave to care for a new child, up to 20 weeks of medical leave if them or a family member has a serious illness or injury. The amount is based on a sliding scale of your income, capped at no more than 64%, and I think the limit is $850 a week. And paid medical and family leave is all part of the grand bargain. Uh, the grand bargain also includes raising the hourly minimum wage to $15. It's currently at $11 here in Massachusetts. There will be a gradual increase of the minimum wage through 2023. Uh, there's also going to be an established yearly sales tax holiday and then an elimination of increased pay for employees working on Sundays. So the grand bargain is coming to fruition. Uh, and means a lot of good and, and different things for employees and workers in the state. Correct me here. If you're a private employer and you already offer this benefit, you don't have to throw that away as long as, I believe this is correct, as long as the benefit you offer is at least equal to the benefit laid out in the, state, in the new state law uh, or, or better than that. Exactly. Equal or better uh, programs stay intact. Uh, companies with fewer than 25 workers don't have to pay into it, but all employees will have to pay a portion of this. Okay, so I think I have this right, Cayenne. Also, each employer will have to contribute about two or $2.50 per pay period or per check, uh, roughly payroll deduction to fund this, regardless, as long as um, you qualify for unemployment benefits. Um, you're kicking in that out of your paycheck. That's the cost to the the taxpayer of Massachusetts um, in order to, to, to get this benefit uh, instituted. Yes, and over time that amount could go down as the program is implemented and I think they get a better handle on how much this is going to cost and how many people are going to be taking advantage of it. The tax will go into effect next summer and then pay leave benefits will become available in 2021. So I think what's smart about that is they're sort of back funding a little bit. They're gonna oh, fill the coffers a little bit. Yeah, we're building bit. up a little reserve. Exactly. Um, so, so that once it's implemented, there is already funding to pull from. Yeah, what do you think about the uh, the time, 12, 12 weeks for um, uh, maternity for, for uh, Maternity adoption. Adult, yeah, new, caring for a new child. Mm -hmm. Seems like a you know a, a, a reasonable benefit. I know other countries uh, have uh, uh, much longer uh, time frames, That's and then up to twenty weeks to care for uh, an ill relative or for illness for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think twelve weeks, three months is about the standard. Uh, some companies do more. Some companies have done less uh, already in their policy. Um, I know I took three months. That was the the standard when I had had my son. Um, 
it, it puts people on an even playing ground, yeah. you know? And I think what's important is that people are gonna feel like it's not something they have to stress about quite as much. And that time is stressful enough, you know, you've got yeah. kids, uh, after you have a baby that it's nice to know that you're gonna have money coming in. Yeah. Be interesting to see how this plays out sort of, you know, within companies internally and how HR departments and uh, management see, uh, how, the, how they integrate or how, how their, you know, standard vacation and, and, and leave policies and personal leave, if they're like, well, hey, you know what? So those three personal days, we're gonna, those are going to go away now. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm speculating. But I think you might see that dynamic emerge at employers um, around the country, particularly smaller ones probably. Particularly smaller, yeah. I, I think. And I think the smaller businesses are feeling a little bit uh, hurt or, or like they took a hit. Um, that could be a blanket statement. I'm sure there are others that feel really good about it. Um, but everyone's paying a part of this. Yeah. So employers are paying, employees are paying. If you work for a great company that offers you months of paid leave without, uh, you know, that's already the policy, uh, you're also paying into this. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think everyone deserves a chance to be home uh, with their with their kids when they first have them or, or adopt them or to feel like they can care for a relative uh, when they're sick or themselves and we're all going to be helping each other out a little bit here in Massachusetts and I, th I think that's a good thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's happening. Next up, there are so many different human stories and perspectives on the U.S.-Mexico border crisis and the plight of refugee families seeking asylum in the United States. The policy of family separation has sharply divided Americans on exactly how families and more specifically, their children are treated at the border. A federal judge in California has ruled that all refugee children who have been separated from their families by the U.S. government must be reunited within 30 days. Our own Kyan Isaacson is a former communications director for the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families. And she's the author of a piece this week at O'NeillNow.com that talks about the kind of trauma that's being inflicted on children right now as part of official U.S. immigration policy. Kyan, this piece you wrote really educated me. It moved me quite a bit, as I'm sure other people, too, who've read it. I wonder if you might summarize a bit for our listeners. Well, thank you. Um, I wrote the piece not so much to be political or to take a political stance. I do realize that's hard to do on this issue. But for me, what I kept coming back to was the idea of child welfare and what's best for these children. Every state has a child welfare agency, and while the missions vary from state to state a little bit and sort of their scope and size, the essential mission is to protect children from maltreatment, from abuse, from neglect, and they really take their sort of marching orders or leads, so to speak, from the federal government as well. Uh, the federal government not only helps to fund these agencies, but they also help to establish the policies that these agencies are carrying out. Uh, it's inherently to protect children. Um, I just had a really a big problem when I, I, I looked about what, at what was happening and I read about it and um, I couldn't finish a story, to be quite honest. Um, I cannot listen to the audio of children screaming and crying. Um, and I think for anyone, you don't have to be a parent, you don't have to uh, you know, have kids that you love and care about to be affected by this and to sort of feel the pain. The idea that our government is having a hand in hurting children is just 
it should be un- unacceptable to everyone, no matter what your your party is, no matter where you are on the liberal conservative scale. And I just come back to this idea that there's almost a, a very sick and cruel irony in the fact that our government is doing exactly what we have set out as a government and as a nation not to do. Yeah, as you point out in your piece, I mean, it's the, in the, you know, the 19th century, the U.S. government recognized that they had a role, that we had a role as a society to protect children and, 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 and to care for kids who, who were in bad situations or didn't have families or whatever it may be. And like anything else, you know, the, the ways of doing that, the methods, the standards have improved and enhanced over the years. We don't have orphanages like we did, as you point out. Uh, it, but, but there's always a system and the syst- there's, a, there's a safety net for kids and to protect them. To protect them, and in the 1970s, the federal government really played more of a role with terms of funding, and then set, establishing standards for this type of care. And um, you, you can make an argument, certainly a strong one, as you do, that our our immigration policy is absolutely the polar opposite of the pledge we've taken as a society to protect kids. Yeah, and it's not to say that any child welfare organization or agency is a perfect system. It's not. Uh, I once worked with. Uh, someone who said the very idea that child welfare organizations exist means that they are flawed. You're dealing with the most vulnerable populations. Uh, They don't always get it right. I would say that the, uh, you know, they don't get a lot of credit when they do, unfortunately. Um, But I worked for DCF here in Massachusetts for four years. It was an absolute honor uh, to work alongside these people who do really yeoman's work every day and they make really really hard decisions and the decision in most cases barring something so blatant is to remove a child from their their home is an incredibly difficult one there are a lot of things that are explored because studies and data have shown that in the majority of cases if a family's issues can be addressed and they can be strengthened a child is better off at home than anywhere else foster home included uh, certainly not an orphanage. And then on the flip side of it, now that we're talking about reunifying families, hopefully, the reunification process is not all, it's not as simple as like, hi, Joey, here's mom, dad, you know, go off. You've, you have caused trauma yeah. uh, to children and to parents. And for some of these infants and babies, they won't remember what happened, but many of them will be affected for years and decades, perhaps forever. Um, And for the children that do remember, they're certainly going to be affected as well. And we don't know how that's gonna manifest itself. And we are damaging children, um, not just for the time that they are in these warehouses and makeshift shelters and quote orphanages, so to speak, um, but the damage that's being inflicted on them could potentially last a lifetime. Just to sort of close this out, my my attempt at a at a, at a poignant uh, thought here, and I, and I don't uh, you know it's not my intent to get to, to 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 politicize the discussion, which is kind of a silly thing to say because it, it's it's a very political discussion in a way, but it's really more of a human discussion and and, and about what's what's right for kids. I I have read a lot, like on my Facebook feed, and you know and and, and or hear heard from people who say, hey, look. Um, and, and, I, and I guess on the facts, it's not wrong. Hey, look, 
these parents chose to take this action to either come into the country illegally or to come in and seek asylum, right? Perfectly legal, per perfectly re you know, reasonable uh, uh, in endeavor if you feel your situation in your country is so bad you want to seek asylum. But they made that decision, and they put their kids in that position. And, and that's their problem, and this is the way it is. Well, guess what? I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's for that very reason it's our obligation to make sure those kids are okay. You know, if those parents have put them in that situation, either in trying to improve improve their living circumstances, or even if, if that's not the case, even if their intentions are bad, the the kid, the children, it's the it's our responsibility to make sure that they're cared for properly, not to say, hey, sorry, kid, your parents really don't they really they really made a mistake. You know, and I, for me, that's I have a similar thought I also I posted this uh, blog to my Facebook page the first people that responded uh, were my father and my stepfather who both disagreed with me um, and I did ask that people just do it respect respectfully and you know, that was my dad one of my my dad's points um, and to that I sort of come back to this very simplistic like two wrongs don't make a right if that's our argument well, they put them in, in harm's way by bringing them here, so that's our excuse to continue to harm them. Shame on us. Um, you know, some, I think he also, or someone commented, you know, they should be charged with child endangerment for doing this. Okay, fine. Then, then charge them, fine, but yeah. we're not doing that. We are strictly sure. just separating them with, and saying, okay, we, while we figure it out, yeah. We're going to keep the kids over here and the parents over here. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. No. Yeah. All right. Kyan, thanks so much. Uh, terrific piece available to, to, to read at O'NeillNow.com. And finally, we learned this week that the Cannabis Control Commission cannot authorize the start of recreational marijuana sales because there is not yet a licensed testing laboratory for recreational product. Such labs do exist for the two dozen or so medical dispensaries in Massachusetts, but the law says a lab must have a separate license for recreational cannabis testing. That's a problem for which a solution is well underway and in the works, as the commission is working with applicants to expedite the licensing process for testing labs. But this comes on top of cities and towns across Massachusetts moving slowly to establish required host community agreements with recreational cannabis businesses and a ruling by Attorney General Maura Healy that allows the town of Mansfield and possibly other municipalities to extend their moratoriums on marijuana sales until 2019. That's next year. We're already six months behind the original deadline of January 1st, 2018. Now we're talking about 2019, 2019 in at least one community and maybe more. Um, Kyan, at what point are we transforming from, let's make sure we get this right, to it looks like we're going to just be dragging our feet? That's an excellent question to which I don't know that I have the answer. However, I can't say that I am surprised that we missed, uh, the, that we're going to miss the July 1 date. Um, there's a lot to do. Again, I do think that Massachusetts is trying to get this right the first time so as to not have to go back and keep fixing problems. But there's going to be growing pains with any new sort of established industry. And at a certain point, you know, we've got to, we got to start walking so that we can run, I guess. Yeah, I, I, 
there's a couple of issues here. One is kind of operational. I have a little conspiracy theory that I th I'll, I'll share uh, or I'll wonder about because it's not really. It's, but as far as the municipalities, look, we already have established that over half of the municipalities in Massachusetts just don't want marijuana businesses in their recreational businesses. Um, and then among those that, 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 that because of the way their towns voted, uh, um, have to accommodate in some way um, unless they vote to, to, to ban, um, there are ways to slow the process down, Mansfield being uh, a good example. We need more time to resolve this. We need more time to establish a host community agreement. And, and zoning I get issues. Zoning issues. And, and I think Maura Healy, cognizant of where she originally stood on legalization, any law and order person is going to be against it, uh, but also the fact that it really is an industry that really is happening. She, I think she's walking kind of a fine line, and, and, and it's probably a, a challenge to be responsive to these needs of the community, but also be be respectful to the the will of the voters, right? Um, I still believe that, hey, you know what? This is all going to be sorted out within months or a year, and you're talking about forever. But it does feel like there seems to be a new delay here or there. My conspiracy theory on this testing lab thing. I cannot wait to hear I just, it. I just wonder if... Um, the medical dispensaries still have this monopoly, um, and, and it's tax-free, uh, and... Maybe they don't want to give it up. Maybe they, they don't mind enjoying this a little longer, and, and, and somehow they're, they're working with these medical testing labs um, to make that happen. The reality is they're all going to be in the business going forward anyways. All these medical dispensaries are going to be recreational. They're going to be sort of the first ones in. Most of these testing labs will introduce recreational uh, uh, programs, but they need to be licensed. And, that's and good on the commission to, to put those up front. I think that was a smart, logical decision to sort of speed some things up where they could. It's true. And, and the advocates who got the ballot question passed um, say, hey, we, you know, there's already testing labs doing medical. Let's just have them do the recreational. And the, and the commission says, yeah, once they have a license for recreational testing, and that's just the way it's going to be. And that makes sense. You're talking about an exponentially larger uh, customer base, uh, you know, uh, literally exponentially. You've got, uh, you know, a few thousand, uh, X number of thousand patients in Massachusetts registered with medical cards. Um, I, I see the air quotes over there. Um, air quotes don't really work on a podcast, but let's just say Kyan gave air quotes. Patients, now you're talking about literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of, of potential customers. It's a, it's a big difference. Anyway, that's where it stands. Um, but I have to say, your prediction was correct. You said, yeah, July 1st seems kind of ambitious, Cosmo. And, uh, and here we are. It's not going to happen. And one last thing on this, actually, is a not being a state budget expert by any stretch of the imagination, so I will not pretend to be. Um, but we don't know how much money from the revenue was factored in to the state budget. And every day, every week, every month that this doesn't start happening, that is revenue lost for our budget. And after last week, we saw with uh, some ballot question initiatives going away, our, you know, there's lots of revenue in, in, in state funding questions. Oh, absolutely. This be, this yeah, just some of this revenue is it's built right in to the projections. Absolutely. All right, then, Cayenne, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. 
Uh, and Kyan, it was an excellent conversation this week, as always. Uh, thank you for these important insights on family separation. Um, to read Kyan's piece on the border crisis and refugee families, go to O'NeillNow.com. 321GO is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Road at our building in the heart of Government Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masseri. That's all for 321GO. Up next, Ann Murphy talks downtown playdates with representatives from Faneuil Hall and the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, Senior Vice President, and I have a really fun subject today. I can't wait to get into it. My guests today are Kelly Leinema, Creative Manager at Faneuil Hall Marketplace, and Kate Levesque, Programs Manager at the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy. Welcome to our podcast, ladies. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Hi. Well, Kelly, I think I'll start with you. Uh, can you tell me what is Downtown Playdates and how did it originate? Downtown Playdates is a collaboration between nine downtown organizations. This includes the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy, Boston Children's Museum, New England Aquarium, Boston Harbor Now, BSA Space, Christopher Columbus Park, The Kitchenette Boston Public Market, Atlantic Wharf, and Faneuil Hall Marketplace. Um, the way that Downtown Playdates originated was that we were meeting with Kate Levesque from the Greenway about two years ago, and we were talking about all the great organizations that abut the Greenway and all of the amazing programming that each of these organizations offers for kids and families every summer. Um, a lot of people in the Boston region don't really thinking about think about bringing their families downtown in the summer. A lot of people escape to the beaches, but we really wanted to showcase all the fun that families can have at these organizations that are all very accessible via public transportation and many of them offer a lot of free activities and events for families in the summer. Well, I think that that's one of the main things. They're public, accessible, and free because, you know, things cost a lot when you're taking families places, especially if you're buying food and all that, too. So having these activities uh, accessible and open to people, I think that's just like a really wonderful thing. Let's talk a little bit about, with Kate, about what's going on uh, the Greenway for the downtown play dates. Sure. Um, we love the fact that we can capitalize on downtown playdates to make even more opportunities accessible. The Greenway has a pretty new play program that we try to bring kids into the park for free and active programming. Um, so for the downtown playdates, we'll be hosting a number of activity carts at the Greenway Carousel. Greenway Carousel runs every Saturday and is open to the public. And we'll be pairing that with um, some special guests, some music performances, and a big kickoff event on July 7th. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so you've, you have been working in this for a few years, and you see things that worked well for families and not. So what are the things that really worked well last season that are coming back into pl downtown playdates? 
So at Faneuil Hall Marketplace, every Saturday we have Rosalita's Puppets. That's always a fan favorite. That's at 10.30 on Saturday mornings, particularly in the eight Saturdays in July and August during which the series is going to be running. Um, we also have found that our chess lessons, which are from 3 to 5 p.m., those are always a big draw. And we have our free games cart, we have ping pong, and then we also have our art cart available so people can recreate at their leisure. Those, would you say that those, some of those, those are Faneuil Hall, but what activities really work well at the Greenway? We find that activities that are drop-in centric, so that don't have a beginning and end time, are really important on the Greenway, and we're kind of repeating those this year, including something that was a big hit last year, which was an instrument petting zoo, where people can come to the Greenway, try their hand at instruments they've never tried before. There'll be all sorts of drums and brass instruments and some woodwinds that you can try out too. It's like fun. Now, are there any totally new activities you're going to try this year that's going to sort of be like an experiment to see if they work? Anyone have any new things they want to share? So the Marketplace this year, we're bringing in artist Karen Swires for four of the eight Friday, four of the eight Saturdays. And she's going to be doing community mural making. This is an event that's going to run it's fairly open from 11 until 3. She's going to work with kids and families to help create large-scale murals of Faneuil Hall Marketplace and other downtown Boston destinations. And then we're also really excited to be partnering with Pound Fitness. Um, on August 4, they're going to be leading a fitness class for 6 to 12-year-olds using drumsticks. So it integrates what? music and dance <laughs> and just pounding away whatever stress a six-year-old might have with drumsticks on the marketplace. I think a few parents will want to get in there too, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and yeah, pound away. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's, that'll be very interesting to watch too. I'd like to see that, I'd like to see that happen. You know? Anything new on the Greenway that you haven't tried before? Um, well, this year we actually just came out with our coloring book based on all of our carousel animals. Um, so while it's new to the Greenway, it's not specific to Saturdays, but we hope that we're going to have lots of art materials out for people to color in our new color car carousel coloring book. Oh, that sounds so cool. Um, there's another thing I think that's very enticing that I, uh, I heard about. Uh, there are weekly prizes and how do people enter the weekly prize giveaway and you maybe you can tell us a little bit about what prizes there are and what kinds of things that people can expect to be competing for. So this year our prize giveaway is a new idea that we had. We're encouraging people to share their photos of downtown playdates activities using the hashtag downtown playdates. They can share these photos on Facebook or on Instagram and every week we will be selecting a winner at random to win one of our great prize packages. These are prizes coming from um, each of our downtown playdates partners. So these range from family four packs of tickets to places like the Boston Children's Museum or the New England Aquarium, um, ferry tickets to get out to the, the Boston Harbor Islands, um, and then tickets to uh, kitchen events, um, free food passes to Quincy Market Dining Hall, um, and then giving away some of these fantastic new carousel um, coloring books that Kate just mentioned. So how do people enter this uh, prize. Enter for the prizes again? Is there so when people share their photos on Facebook or Instagram using the tag, the hashtag downtown playdates, we'll be looking through those photos on the Monday after the event, selecting a winner, and then reaching out to them through direct messaging to coordinate the distribution of the prizes. Great. And of course, all parents are going to have a phone with them now to take pictures of their kids doing the fun things right down there. Oh, they should. <laughs> um, 
in the green way. It's just such a beautiful gem in the middle of our fair city here that didn't exist a while ago, at least didn't exist when I was growing up. Uh, are people really responding to it now as a family-friendly area and taking advantage of it? Um, I would say that in my even short time here, it's ramped up in terms of families bringing their kids to the park for activities for the entire family, as opposed to just coming for a kid activity or just coming for an adult activity. We have two now fabulous beer gardens that are kid-friendly and kids can come in and hang out with their parents there. Um, I know as a parent, that makes me very happy. Definitely with the beer <laughs> gardens. <laughs> right. We have family-friendly festivals throughout July and August where you can check out vendors, get some interesting eats, try out um, new activities with your family. Maybe there's a different cultural dance you want to try out, or maybe there's some new music you can listen to. So we have a lot that kind of works for all age ranges on the Greenway, and we're really excited because this year is uh, we're coming up on our 10th season, so we just are feeling like the park is full, and it's beautiful, and it's a great place to be. Well, I think it's just great because uh, Faneuil Hall Marketplace has been there since the 1800s as an original food market. Then in 1976, it kind of rejuvenated to this wonderful festival marketplace. And you have the old now with the new. You know, the Faneuil Hall Marketplace is always reinventing itself and bringing people down there and wanting people, local people alike, and even visitors to enjoy it. Enjoy it, you know, in collaboration with some of the other new partners. So I think that's the beauty of this relationship in downtown playdates you can kind of bring it all together under kind of one umbrella so to see to, to, to allow families to see what the possibilities are to have a great day in Boston I know that you all agree with me right <laughs> well one thing that Kelly and I had talked about as parents that's really sometimes hard is to know what to do there's this huge list of things out there but which website do I go to and how do I find out about all the individual things and here's a really easy way to know I can go to one place literally physically and on a website and know about what I can do there with my kids. Well, that leads me to the question of how how do people find out about downtown play dates and where did they go? So to find out more about downtown play dates, it's really easy. Go to downtownplaydates.com and we have a full listing of all of our events that are occurring every week. We also will be having in the future information about parking and how to get there. Um, you can also go to Faneuil Hall Marketplace's Facebook page and you can find us in the events calendar on the Facebook page as well. Wow, now we're looking at a wonderful summer ahead of us with all kinds of things to do for families and it's really, really great and I hope that we can see a lot of families using, using all of the nine locations. So I thank you for coming in and talking to us and good luck this summer. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Kelly and Kate for coming in to talk with Ann. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. So we're here for Two Minutes with Tom with our CEO, Tom O'Neill. Hi, Tom. Cayenne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. So there's been a lot of news related to the Supreme Court this week. Uh, first, the Supreme Court voted to uphold Trump's travel ban, which prohibits travel to the U.S. from seven countries. Uh, critics say that the policy reflects anti-Muslim prejudice from the Trump administration, but now the Supreme Court says that's not true, and it is, in fact, about terrorist activity and the safety of our country. 
Uh, second, they voted in favor of Janice, who is a union employee from Illinois, and essentially against unions. Uh, the decision is seen as a huge blow to unions and a first potentially large step towards dismantling unions in the United States. And then on Wednesday, Justice <coughs> Kennedy announced that he was stepping down, paving the way for Trump to appoint another Supreme Court nominee. And this, of course, has incredible ramifications for the direction of our country. Justice Kennedy was considered sort of the swing vote, providing some balance. Uh, Trump's first pick, Neil Gorsuch, has already moved the Supreme Court to the right, or at least in a more conservative manner. Another Trump appointee will only further move it to the right. And with the new makeup, there's a lot of talk about issues like Roe versus Wade being overturned. Yes. Uh, so there's a lot to take apart and discuss. Let's talk about what's at stake and what these decisions mean. Well, it's kind of mind-boggling, you know, when you, when you think of everything that, that has happened this week with the Supreme Court issuing those two findings, number one, and um, the opportunity now for President Trump to have yet a second candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court in his first term as President of the United States. So as, as I think you definitely took them apart. I think one has to remember that while people are going to the polls to vote for their candidate for president, the Supreme Court justice decisions rank seventh, eighth, or ninth on the average voter's mind when they cast that ballot. And here we have it in living proof, uh, in, in living color, if you will, what, that's, what, the, what the vote for, for, for Donald Trump meant to the people of this country, which could have a lasting effect for decades. Um, Justice, Justice Kennedy going off, people tend to forget that it was Ronald Reagan who appointed him 31 years ago. And nobody knew that he would serve that long or that he would be a middling uh, moderate voice on the U.S. Supreme Court in so many, in so many issues. Um, I dare say, given the choice of Neil Gorsuch uh, by President Trump, that the next appointment that he will make will be as conservative, if, if not more. And so that, too, will have an effect on all the things that you mentioned during the course of, 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 um, of, of this, um, this nomination. Um, so why, why am I talking about given the Supreme Court? Because people tend to think about change, but they don't think about the U.S. Supreme Court when they cast that ballot for the presidency of the United States. And the, the overriding effect can be, can be long-serving. I mean, it can go on for decades, the impact that that vote is going to have, and people, again, disregard it or don't think about it, number one. They should also be reminded that it's not only the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's the federal district courts, it's the appellate courts, and the hundreds of appointments which have been made by Donald Trump already in the first 18 months of his administration are going to have a very lasting effect on everything. From, from women's rights of, of, of reproduction to, to anything you can imagine on voting rights, on anything that is of consequence, banning handguns or banning weaponry. I mean, everything is going to be taken into consideration and will be turned around, and the very Constitution of the United States is going to be challenged here. And another thing that uh, the Trump administration is doing is they're, uh, from top to bottom, they're picking young candidates. These are not people um, who are older. Uh, their, their tenure in, in place is going to be, in a lot of ways, substantially longer That's than right. others. And that effect is going to be even longer lasting than what we've seen before. That's right. Justice Kennedy, who turned out to be a true moderate 
in the Supreme Court, an appointee of Ronald Reagan's has served for over three decades. And so the effect of his being on that, on that panel, on that Supreme Court, will have a lasting effect. Um, and so that's right. It's, it's the younger person who will be around for a long while to come, which will have an, a, 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 a very long-term effect on, on the consequences of the American people and the way we comport ourselves. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to hear more about ways to enjoy Boston this summer, tune in to OA On Air Extra, where Ann Murphy's talking about summer fun at Faneuil Hall Marketplace. There are lots of activities for everyone right in Faneuil Hall, including fitness and dance classes, arts, crafts, and games. And on a programming note, we will be taking next week off from OA On Air. We hope everyone has a safe and happy 4th of July. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be subscribing. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you in two weeks. OA On Air is developed, recorded, and produced in our Boston office here in Government Center. Production by Brooke O'Meara Sion. And content creation by the O'Neill & Associates team. Music is provided by Ben Sound and Long Zijun. To stay up to date with us here at OA On Air, be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes.